The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Those of you who haven't been here regular, or maybe you're just visiting, um, we are going through books of the Bible, and we have been going through the book of 1 Corinthians for many months, actually, because that's the way the Apostle Paul wrote it, just straight through. In our English Bible, it's 16 chapters, and we start in the beginning, and go to the end, and that's how Paul intended it to be read and studied, and I believe God as well. So that's what we've been doing through our church. So we're all the way up to actually chapter 12. Uh, we took two weeks off for Christmas, had some Christmas messages, and we actually began our first uh, sermon in a series of sermons that will cover First Corinthians 12 through 14. Chapter 12, 13, and 14 actually are a unit that goes together, develops one main theme with many different subpoints throughout that Paul wanted to or needed to address the Corinthian Christians. So we are going to see 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 as a unit uh, together. And we've got to preserve the continuity throughout to fully understand uh, Paul's argument and what he's exhorting the Corinthians. We introduced three weeks ago the first sermon in this series, which was the first six verses. Some of you may have not been here, regulars, if you're out of town or whatever, so just trying to bring you up to speed a little bit. We did... Uh, introduce verses 1 through 6 of chapter 12, which was kind of an introduction to our study on spiritual gifts. Uh, So we're going to pick up verse 7 and following, and we probably won't get past verse 7 today because it's a loaded and potent statement that needs to be uh, addressed. The theme Paul introduces in chapter 12, verse 1, he said, "Now now concerning, he changed topics, he just finished talking about the Lord's Supper and other problems the Corinthians were having. And so now he's introducing a new topic. That's why he said, now concerning. Now concerning for the next three chapters. Now, chapter 12, 13, and 14, I'm going to be talking about the following subject. Now concerning spirituals is the Greek word. In the Greek text, it doesn't say spiritual gifts, but he means spiritual gifts very clearly from the context. So now concerning, I'm I'm going to change the topic. And for the next three chapters, I'm going to be talking about spiritual gifts. And... As we have seen in the book of Corinthians, everything that Paul brings up, he needed to bring up out of urgency, but he also needed to bring it up because it was a problem. That issue was a problem in the Corinthian church. They had wrong thinking, wrong behavior, and that is also true regarding spiritual gifts. The Corinthian Christians were gifted by God spiritually. They were using their gifts But many of them were misusing their gifts. Many of them actually were abusing their gifts in the local church. Not all of them, but enough of them to uh, make it a huge dilemma in their church that even spilled over probably into the community and other churches heard about it. So there was a sense of urgency here. By the way, it's one of the bigger problems that this church had because Paul dedicates three long chapters to it or three a huge section of this epistle is corrective regarding spiritual gifts. Um, So that's what he's going to be talking about, just so you know, that's going to be the context. So that's going to be our theme today, spiritual gifts. And as a result, that's why as I pick up verse 7, the title of today's sermon is Foundational Truths About Spiritual Gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Now we have a monumental task on our hands, or at least I do on my hands, of addressing this issue of spiritual gifts. I said this a little bit last week because uh, the, the topic of spiritual gifts... Uh, touches just about every person who claims to be 
a, a biblical Christian or an evangelical Christian in one way or another. Uh, and it touches people differently. We all have different backgrounds, beliefs, those kind of things. So uh, we are treading on some shaky ground here just in, in terms of the topic. I was thinking about that earlier. Okay, what are things Christians fight about? 100 people surveyed top five answers who are on the board. Music, number one answer. Ching, 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 ching. Music styles or whatever. Uh, that might be one. Uh, money, ching, 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 ching. Number two answer. Uh, and then theology, theological issues. You might even, and I think at the top of the list of the theological issues that divide Christians or that they're squabbling about, at least in the last 50 years here in our American church, has been this issue of spiritual gifts. So it's uh, a, a delicate, sensitive topic. And we're going to deal with it accordingly. It's my goal, <laughs> there's two main goals here. Ex- reading through and explaining the text exegetically. That, for me, actually, I think it's a piece of cake. What the difficult part is, after we exegete it and exposit it and then explain it, the hard part is how do we apply this? Especially in this day and age. Especially in terms of currents going on around the world and in America. Especially in light of our backgrounds or presuppositions that every single one of us may be bringing to the text regarding spiritual gifts. For example, by way of illustration, uh, those of you who uh, born and raised grew up in a charismatic Pentecostal church or you at some point went to a charismatic or a Pentecostal church or you at one time were charismatic or Pentecostal or maybe you currently are charismatic or Pentecostal or if you actually know someone and have a friend who is a Christian charismatic of sorts, raise your hand. I'm raising my hand. And the supermajority of you have raised your hand. That just shows you how highly influential and real this issue is for us. And you can go on the Internet and go to YouTube and you can pretty much self-serve and hear whatever you want to hear and feed your own view and your own position uh, to an extreme that maybe isn't balanced or you can do it and get legitimate sources. So that's just a tremendous challenge. So we're praying and asking God to lead us primarily through the truth of his word. Every single one of us needs to be uh, open, willing, and submissive to God's word, his truth, as it is in Scripture. Um, we, we aren't really concerned about human tradition, human opinions, um, those kind of things, as much as we are as what God says clearly in his word. That's the view of our church, and it's really the view of Jesus himself and the apostles as they gave it. This is God's binding, authoritative, sufficient work, the scriptures. So we praise God that he can clearly guide us through this minefield of opinions. Uh, before we do that... Um, just a reminder, because this is such a complicated issue, I mean, I've already had questions, emails and face-to-face questions from people just from the first sermon. They were, they're actually good questions. Most of them are hard questions or difficult or complex, in other words. Somebody asks me a question or shoots me a one-sentence email on a question, and I'm thinking, wow, I need like nine pages to answer this question. That's how complicated it is because of all the caveats and this and that. Uh, so uh, it is a challenge. So we're not going to be in a hurry necessarily to get through what God has laid before us because I think it is so relative and practical. By the time we go through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, according to God's word, I think if you're listening, paying attention, you're teachable, I think we're all going to have a very healthy, balanced, biblical view of spiritual gifts. Even if it's challenged by many different views out there in the world. So that's the good thing. God's word is sufficient. Uh, but before we actually get into the details and just keep zooming on, to lay the foundation, I think it's really important for us 
to alleviate or get rid of or dismiss some of the ignorance that we might have. Uh, verse 1. I'm going to go back to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, the first thing Paul says is, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be unaware. He said this back in chapter 10, verse 1. On this issue, I don't want you to be unaware. Uh, he says it in Thessalonians. He says it in several other epistles. I don't want you to be unaware. You know what that means? It's, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant, so I'm going to enlighten you. I don't know if you ever thought about it, but if you look at the word ignorant, ignorant, ignore, ignore, ignorant, ignore. What is ignorant? Someone who is ignorant is somebody who ignores facts and truth. In other words, they don't have all the information. They're operating out of a void. And many times, ignorant people, they're, they're oblivious to the fact that they're ignorant. Sometimes it's not even their fault that they are ignorant. They're just the ninth generation of somebody else who was ignorant, and that was passed down, and they were never educated. This is all they know. And so that was true of the Corinthians. Paul is saying, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant on the topic of spiritual gifts. You are lacking some important information, so I want to give you some inspired information from God to fill out your ignorance so you're not operating in ignorance anymore. So if you're ignorant about something, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, it is your fault. It doesn't necessarily mean it is sinful. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees were ignorant at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in a lot of ways. And then Jesus gave them the information they needed, filled out the void of ignorance. Then as a result, most of them rejected what he had to say. And then they went from being ignorant to willfully hard-hearted and disobedient and blasphemers. Now, when Jesus was on the cross, uh, he pleaded to the Father, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them, Father, because many of these people uh, and, and in the crowd and the masses of the Israel, they are ignorant. They are unaware. They don't know. And many of those people, when they get more information, they are going to believe and submit to the truth of Jesus, and many of them did. So uh, this is very important. Paul saying that the Corinthians are ignorant about some issues, and we are ignorant as well. One of the things that we are susceptible to as humans is from generation to generation, we are ignorant of the past or what went before us. And if we are not a student of history, and if we're not willing to do the research and be honest about history and see how we got here, that's a problem. But the first thing we need to do is we need to know history and be aware of it where it's relevant. That's exactly what Paul, Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 10.1. He said, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, about what? About the history of Israel in the Old Testament. So their ignorance was about history, biblical history. So he brought them up to speed. About, he, rem- he walked them through the Pentateuch. Do you, do you know, are you aware of these principles? Have you ever heard this story? It's absolutely relevant to how you live today. So he was trying to uh, dismiss, get rid of their ignorance by giving them information. So we need to do the same thing. Uh, so that's why I want to give a little historical background uh, to get rid of our ignorance, uh, to maybe remove needless presuppositions, wrong thinking that we might be bringing to the table regarding uh, spiritual gifts. Um, the problem of being ignorant of history, uh, like I said, it, it just it happens all the time everywhere with all people. It, it happens in our own day. There are many people, even in the Christian church, that are ignorant about history, that they shouldn't be, and it affects the way they think. Think about um, removing some of the ignorance. That At one point, back in the 1950s, everybody in America knew that Hitler was evil and the Nazis were bad. And if today... There's kind of a trend in chasing and historical revisionism or changing where some people don't think Hitler was bad or that the Nazis were bad. No, they were. 
Don't be ignorant of true history. Uh, communism is not good. It is bad. And from a biblical point of view and a biblical worldview, if you think communism is good, you are guilty of either being ignorant or historical revisionism or thinking the wrong way or not thinking biblically. So ignorance is very dangerous. Um, Karl Marx, bad. Don't be ignorant. More and more today we're hearing, no, his principles were good. No, he was evil. He was categorically hostile to Christianity and the Bible and Jesus, and his philosophies were of the devil. So uh, if you do your research objectively and honestly about history, that's what you'll find. The same thing with Freud and Darwin. Not on that goes. Modern, I'll bring you up to modern-day uh, issues. Um, I think of with all the environmentalism and CO2, CO2, carbon dioxide, when I was growing up, I was taught that CO2 was a good thing. Today, we're told it's a bad thing. When I was growing up, I was taught that, uh, uh, what do they call them, uh, greenhouse gases are bad. And I was, when I was growing up, they were, they were taught they were good. So there's been a change in our entire culture. And so we can't be fall prey to being uh, victims of ignorance. That's my only point. So here's a little history uh, about the charismatic movement it's known as today or and it's got many strains it, it first started in pentecostalism historically and then uh, what was called the four square church and then another uh, wave that came in the 1960s was the charismatic movement and on and on so it, it's uh, quite diverse in its manifestation but just as christians what we need to know just su- i don't need to go through an extensive history but just basic things prior to 1900 this is significant from the time of christ and the apostles and the completion of the new testament up until 1900 there was no charismatic movement in Christianity anywhere in the world. So in the 1850s, uh, if you, you just didn't know anybody that was a charismatic on planet Earth. And honest charismatic and Pentecostal theologians will readily admit that, and actually they own that. And they say, yeah, because God promised to bring the next wave, the latter reigns of his spirit. So they would acknowledge that. And they actually don't have a problem with this void of uh, the charismatic theology and all of its manifestations not even being around for 18, actually 1,900 years. Uh, but I think we've got to be honest about that. For 1,900 years, there was no charismatic theology, charismatic manifestations. Um, so that is significant. Um, and then another significant point that charismatics will tell us and Pentecostals, they will admit that the origins of their belief system and their practice of their religion started in 1900 with a guy named Charles Fox Parham. Parham, however you pronounce it. In 1900. And he was probably in his late 20s, early 30s. Um, grew up in Kansas. Uh, he came at a very young age, became relish, uh, interested in religion and preaching and teaching the Bible. Wasn't the most highly educated guy there was, but he was influential. Apparently a persuasive speaker. Uh, had the ability to have people follow him because people did follow him. And probably in his 20s, took his following and actually started a Bible school, kind of like he called it a Bible college. And uh, he had initially 40 students, studied with them for the first year, and then gave them a challenge to search the scriptures, particularly the book of Acts, and asking his students to help him discover what is the manifestation or sign uh, of being filled with the Spirit. And then he went away and came back. Actually, he went away and visited other uh, interesting religious leaders in his area in the day that were known. 
And then he came back and his students basically told him, well, I think we discovered it in the book of Acts. Uh, the sign of being filled with the Spirit is speaking in tongues or speaking in languages. And what they understood was, uh, just as the apostles and the disciples of John the Apostle, when they were filled with the Spirit, they spoke with other languages. Not gibberish and babble, but they originally believed it was legitimate human languages that they had never learned before. And they are right in saying that in Acts chapter 2 and other places in Acts, Acts 19, when uh, the believers spoke in tongues, it wasn't in gibberish or babble. It was actually in a known human language. And the supernatural ability was to speak in that language without being taught and going through that long, arduous process of learning a foreign language, which those of you who are trying to take Hebrew know how painful that is. Amen. And supposedly this gift was the ability. So Charles Parham, he starts this Bible school, 40 students. He leaves. He comes back. And his students say, oh, we figured it out. And this is on uh, New Year's Eve, uh, actually 1890, or no, 1900, New Year's Eve, December 31st. And they're going in the late hours. They're having a prayer vigil. They're searching the scriptures. And then they carry over into New Year's Day, January 1, 1901. And one of the ladies who was one of the students, um, Agnes Osman, was convinced. Actually, she had been practicing speaking in tongues, came to be, find out later. And so she told Pastor Charles, or the Bible teacher, uh, you need to lay your hands on me and ask for God's Holy Spirit to come down upon me so that I might receive the gift of speaking in tongues, the sign of being filled with the Spirit. And so uh, Charles apparently was reluctant, but then he conceded and he laid hands on her and then uh, lights and all kinds of crazy stuff and a uh, halo over her head. And then all of a sudden she began to speak in tongues after a couple of minutes and that went on. And apparently he said... Uh, according to history, that she began to speak in Chinese. Now, none of these Kansas folk knew Chinese or what it looked like. And apparently she couldn't speak English for three days, and then she went on to speak Chinese for three days and only Chinese and even write out Chinese. And that script that she wrote, you can actually find it on Google today and see it. And those of you who know Chinese, you look at it, try to read it, come back to me, and you'll tell me that does not look like Chinese. Uh, it's a bunch of scribble. And in that day, there were many uh, professionals who were skeptical and examined the writing, and they determined that back then in 1901, this is gibberish, this is no human language known to man. Yet they claimed, oh, this is a supernatural gift that God has given us, this is speaking in tongues. And then they changed their theology from the ability to speak in a regular human language to they had to come up with something, and they did. And they said, well, actually, it's an unknown language. It's called a heavenly language, and it's actually indiscernible uh, by human ears with anybody of any dialect or language whatsoever. And so that really is the root of speaking in tongues of the heavenly language genus that we have even today. So depending upon what charismatic you're talking to, and I once was a practicing charismatic in my early days as a Christian, uh, there were two views of speaking in tongues. There was the gift that was supernatural, and it was ability to speak in a human language you had never learned before, but it was a known human language. So if God came over me, and all of a sudden, poof, McManus knows Chinese, and I could speak it fluently. That was actually the biblical gift. And God used it apparently for edifying, preaching, teaching, uh, the mission field. Uh, I mean, we see that in uh, Corinthians and also in the book of Acts. Uh, then the second view of tongues is this heavenly language that only angels can understand. And as a matter of fact, the one who speaks this uh, speaking in tongues doesn't even understand what they're saying while they're saying it because it's just gibberish. It's uh, nonsensical from a human point of view. It sounds like mumbling, and it can't be discerned on a human level. And so uh, we are told in charismatic theology there are two kinds of speaking in tongues. So when you're Talking about speaking in tongues, you've got to be aware of which one they're talking about. And one is for the known language that's unlearned, that's for the body. And the one that's undiscernible, the babble, 
the heavenly song, that's for you individually, your personal prayer life is what they would say. So uh, what they've done is actually created um, two views coinciding with one another about speaking in tongues. And I'll just tell you, that's not in the Bible. Speaking in tongues is consistent in the Bible, uh, the book of Acts, Isaiah, and also in Corinthians. So we'll get to that. So anyway, so that's the origin of speaking in tongues. Started out slow and then uh, influenced a lot of people. And then shortly within, by 1926, there were tens of thousands of people uh, in America speaking in tongues and uh, desiring signs and manifestations of the Holy Spirit, of an ecstatic, mystical, subjective uh, nature. And so, it, and then it was pretty much re- uh, retained to that circle widespread biblical evangelical christianity saw that kind of as a weird fringe view so it didn't immediately infiltrate all the denominations that were already established the baptists uh all the known denominations Um, that didn't come until the 1960s when the walls came down where it influenced everything so um, just important to remember the context of where uh, the predecessor of the modern-day Pentecostal charismatic theology comes from, it would be Charles Parham. And Charles went on to have a, actually a, not a good life at all in terms of being a Christian because he got into compromise. Uh, he was chased out of town a couple of times for unethical behavior. Um, he affiliated with cultists and weird false Bible teachers. It's clear. I mean, you can do all the research and read all this. This has been cataloged. The current newspapers of the day wrote it down in detail so there's a a legitimate objective record that is comprehensive about his biography he even had a biographer who lays all these things out so just in terms of the guy's character became clear he was a false teacher a false prophet uh even getting in and going to jail for for immorality sexual immorality later on in his life and on and on it just goes from bad to worse actually um so a nefarious character indeed so with that, now let's go to 1 Corinthians 12, and we're going to look at what the problem was with the Corinthians that Paul was trying to address, because it was a huge problem. Uh, he addressed verses 1 through 6 is his introduction. He lays a foundation, and the main point he wanted to make there in verses 1 through 6 was basically this. Everyone, every Christian has a spiritual gift. Um, have the right perspective about your spiritual gift. Uh, Many of you are not controlling your spiritual gift as you should should with self-control. And many of you are acting like you used to do when you were a pagan, when you'd be carried away through emotionalism, experience, mystical expression, subjectivism, and even the false gods. And you're being led away in this uh, crazy hysteria. And Paul, point number one up front is don't do that. I'm just telling you, that has nothing to do with biblical spiritual gifts that was verse two and three you need to control your spiritual gift you're a steward of it we're going to see that uh, fleshed out even more so let's go to verse seven pick up where paul left off um and he says in verse seven but to each one and what he means by each one is every christian to every, if you're a christian if you know jesus christ today then this is speaking to you each one every single one of us that is a believer that is truly a christian to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit manifestation uh that's uh, a synonym for spiritual gift so what paul's reiterating once again every christian who's truly saved in this church has a spiritual gift and it came from the holy spirit of god the reason paul needs to say that up front is because 
one of the main problems in the Corinthian church was that some of the Corinthians who had the showy gifts, whether it was preaching, teaching, prophesying, speaking in tongues, a word of wisdom, the verbal, the verbal gifts where you stood up and you had an audience, that was going to the head of many of the Corinthians and they were becoming arrogant about it. And they thought, oh, I'm the most important because I have the gift of prophecy. And then they were diminishing the lesser gifts or the unknown gifts or the behind-the-scenes gifts, the, the service gifts. And Paul's saying that is wrong, that is self-centered, that is sinful, it doesn't glorify God and undermines the very purpose of gifts. So one of the main themes all throughout 12, 13, and 14 is Paul keeps reminding the Corinthians that every believer has a spiritual gift, every gift is significant, every believer is significant, God's going to use every believer to grow his church. As a matter of fact, God will use, he needs, because he chose to use every believer to edify and build his body. And so don't be inflated about your view of your spiritual gift. And that's what he's emphasizing here in verse 7. So he's trying to encourage the lesser uh, folks, maybe who've been looking, getting looked down upon, or they're thinking, oh, my spiritual gift's no good, or it's not showy, or it's worthless, or God doesn't need my gift. And Paul's very encouraging to them, and it's a rebuke to the others. But to each one of us, every Christian is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Now, every time somebody wants to join GBF, join our church, uh, we hear their testimony, we ask them, do they know the gospel? Uh, and one thing I usually ask is, what do you think your spiritual gift is? It's very important. That's basically being a Christian. Because when you join the church or when you're part of a local body, one of the main responsibilities God expects of you is to exercise your spiritual gift in service to help the church grow. And, you know, sometimes people are honest and they say, well, actually, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. That's fine. Paul's aware of that. We need to learn what our spiritual gift is. But the point is, if you are a Christian, you have a spiritual gift. You might even have more than one spiritual gift or a combination of many different kinds of gifts. But if you're a Christian, you have a gift. So that's very important to keep in mind. That is a foundational truth. Uh, Verse 7, But to each one, each Christian, is given the manifestation of the Spirit. And for the purpose of that gift is the end of verse 7. What is the purpose of your spiritual gift? It's for the common good. What does that mean? Well, God expects you to use your spiritual gift to serve others. So that is huge. In, In today's day and age... In all that we're hearing and all the manifestations of what's going on, supposedly the Holy Spirit is doing through, whether it's charismatic theology, Pentecostal theology, uh, one key component is sometimes the gifts are self-oriented. Many times speaking in tongues is showcased as the ultimate gift. It is the sign of being a Spirit-filled believer. And the example given is this private prayer language where you go into your closet and you pray just between you and the Holy Spirit, and you're speaking an unknown, babble kind of undiscernible language. Nobody else is hearing it. You're saying it, and you don't even know what you're saying. And supposedly this is a spiritual gift, and yet Paul says every spiritual gift that is given, its purpose is for the common good. And in Ephesians, Peter, uh, Romans 12, we're going to see this. What he means by the common good is Goal number one of your spiritual gift is to use it in serving others, not for self-edification. He's going to say that explicitly in 1 Corinthians 14. Your spiritual gift isn't for you. How are other people being blessed by you using your spiritual gift? How are other people being blessed by you exercising your spiritual gift? How is it encouraging them? You've got to interface with people when using your gift, otherwise it's not being used the proper way. So that is very basic. Uh, to biblical Christianity and what Paul's going to argue here. So 
uh, introducing this verse. Now, verse uh, on your outline there, I put 1 through 9. 1 through 9. Some of these points that I'm making here in 1 through 9 flow directly out of chapter 12, verse 7, the verse I just read. And the rest of them are corollary truths that are intertwined with those basic truths in verse 7. So that's why there are nine points here. Not all nine of these points flow directly out of verse 7, but they are directly related. They are absolutely foundational. What I'm trying to do is give us a full-orbed perspective so we can understand this truth properly. We need the proper perspective. If we are myopic and looking through a very small lens, we can't see the big picture many times, then we can't understand everything we need to understand. We need to see the entire perspective. We need to see the entire reality. And so that was my goal in steps one through nine. So we can't have a limited perspective. That's what I'm trying. I'm trying to rip away that veil of darkness or ignorance or whatever it is. It's kind of like, um, do you remember the exogorth? Most of you don't remember the exogorth. Uh, I don't know why you wouldn't, because the exogorth, colloquially known, it was that, uh, do you remember Han Solo and Princess Leia flying through space and they're running uh, away from the bad guys and then and then Han says, oh, there's a spot, and then he takes his millennial falcon and he goes down in a cave that he thinks is safe and they park there and he's there for a while and then they get out and all of a sudden the, it starts moving and they realize we are not in a cave. We are in the mouth of a huge monster and we're in the stomach. we got to get out of here. And then they fly out. That is a perfect example of their perspective was wrong at first. It was limiting. They, they weren't even faced. They didn't even know what reality was. So uh, we've got to have the right perspective. So let's go ahead and do that and we're going to start Uh, Let's go ahead and look at number one, about foundational truths regarding spiritual gifts, starting with number one. We're going to go all the way to number nine. And like I said, we're going to go at a pace that I think we need to fully understand everything, so we're not in a hurry. Uh, The goal is not to finish all nine by lunchtime today because I'll be really hungry at 3 o'clock. I don't know about you. And when I wrote this, I didn't intend to finish this all today, just so you know. I wrote it down as these are truths we need to know. These are truths also related to questions I've already received that you have asked. So they are very important. So let's go ahead and look at these. Uh, And I believe they are all driven clearly by Scripture. As a matter of fact, 1 through 9, in my opinion, aren't really controversial uh, truths. I mean, a whole lot of debate shouldn't go into these. That's what I was trying to do, make these real simple. They're clearly in the Bible. These aren't obscure uh, I think they're foundational. That's why I said they're foundational. But they're going to define the parameters for us on this very complicated issue. So let's go to point number one regarding spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts matter and should not be minimized. Spiritual gifts matter and should not. In other words, spiritual gifts are important. Wow, that's a no-brainer. Really, McManus? Yeah. Uh, there is a lot of practical relevance to that historically and even today for several reasons. There needs to be a proper balance. I put Matthew 28, 20. Jesus said at the, you know, the, the Great Commission, he's about to ascend up into heaven, and he said, go and make disciples. Make disciples of, of the whole world. Go, that means evangelize and give the gospel. Then he said, baptize them. After they believe, and after hearing the gospel, baptize them, initiate them into the church. Then he said, teaching them. Teaching them what? Teaching them everything that I have commanded. What is that? That is the entirety of the New Testament, uh, Matthew to Revelation. 
So that's a basic command. We need to study everything in the New Testament. We need to understand everything in the New Testament. We need to believe everything in the New Testament and apply everything in the New Testament. And the reason I'm saying that is because there are at least four different key passages in the New Testament, mostly in the Apostle Paul, that address specifically spiritual gifts, how important they are, how every Christian needs to be doing them, and it is the key to growth in a local church. And yet there are pockets of evangelicals in Christianity today who marginalize or minimize the importance of spiritual gifts. Maybe I don't know if it's an overreaction to the inflated view that some charismatics and Pentecostals throughout history have have put on gifts. Like that's the most important thing. True spirituality is defined by the manifestation of spiritual gifts. That's true. There's been a lack of balance there. What we don't want to do is go to the other end of the spectrum, like a pendulum swinging too far and minimizing or just dismissing the importance of spiritual gifts. What's your spiritual gift? I think that's an important question. Every Christian needs to answer that question and know that question. They are a steward of that question. And I don't think it's right or healthy to say, it doesn't matter what your spiritual gift is. Just serve. Just be obedient. No, that's not just serve. Peter says serve using your spiritual gift in 1 Peter 4.10. We serve with our spiritual gift, in keeping with our spiritual gift. It's a supernatural, amazing stewardship that God has given us. As a matter of fact, you can serve at your greatest capacity if it's in keeping with your spiritual gift. One of the worst things that a Christian could do is trying to serve or force it where God hasn't gifted them. And currently today, spiritual gifts are minimized or marginalized. A great book by Gene Getz, um, Sharpening the Focus of the Church, Dallas Seminary, written 40 years ago. Great book. But in there, categorically, he basically dismisses the importance of spiritual gifts. And at the time, maybe he was resisting the tide that he saw of the overemphasis on spiritual gifts. I don't know. But that's a well-known truth on that great book. Uh, A pastor, I mean, I've worked on staff with guys, one in particular for five years, and would repeatedly say in talking to new people, well, it doesn't matter what your gift is. We we don't need to worry about spiritual gifts. And I was always like, well, nah, we do. It's in the Bible. So that's why it's so important. Look at church history, where so much of church history, middle evil history, even uh, more recent church history, where many churches were either one pastor ran the show, kind of like on the Andy Griffith show. There's one pastor, and everybody goes to church, and everybody leaves, and none of the saints ever do anything in that church because it's all in the pastor. Nobody, Which tells me maybe the saints aren't using their gift. But that, that has been true throughout history where uh, we pay the pastor or the leadership, and the leadership does everything in the church, and the saints do nothing. And that was especially true in the Roman Catholic Church when Latin was spoken by the priest and many people in the audience didn't know the length, what he was saying. So it's like you go, you're strictly a spectator, you leave. You're not using your gift. You're not expected to use your gift. The guy up there, the father, he's called the priest. You aren't a priest. Whereas the New Testament says every Christian is a priest, which means every Christian is gifted by God to serve and have direct access to Almighty God as a priest in the Old Testament. So that is the priesthood of the believer. It is so important. So the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer complements this idea that every spiritual gift is important and it matters. And so we take it seriously here at our church. So let's go on to number two. Uh, Every Christian has a spiritual gift, and I already commented on this, uh, and that was Paul's point of emphasis uh, we already read last week. He said in verse 3, reminding the Corinthians, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. Uh, And then he just goes on to uh, 
reiterate, oh, especially in verse 6. Um, there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all people. In other words, God gives a spiritual gift to every Christian. Every Christian. You are not exempt. So maybe you're here today and you didn't know what your spiritual gift was. Maybe you weren't sure if you had a gift. I guarantee you. Scripture's clear. You have a gift. Discovering it, that is a different issue. But God has gifted you, clearly. Uh, Look at Ephesians 4. I said earlier there are four key passages in the New Testament that give us really a theology of spiritual gifts. Well, Ephesians 4 is one of those. So we're going to be going back to that at times as we go through 1 Corinthians because it's such an important complement. But starting in uh, Ephesians 4, 1, Paul implores all believers to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. Live like a godly Christian. Well, that's easy for you to say, Paul. How do I do it? How do I live a godly life? And you know what Paul's answer is? Know your spiritual gift. Use it accordingly. That's his answer. So one of the keys to living the godly Christian life is knowing what your gift is and using it first and foremost in the context of the local church. That's the theme in uh, Colossians, Ephesians, Romans, Corinthians, 1 Peter. Every passage that talks about using your spiritual gift it is the context of living an obedient Christian life. And the way you do that is by using your spiritual gifts. And the context is the local church first, then the world. And there's no exception here. He says the same thing. This is all about the body of Christ, the entire chapter of Ephesians 4. So live like a godly Christian in a manner worthy of your calling. How do you do that? Well, specifically with humility and gentleness, patience towards one another. That's, he's specifically talking about how you interact with other believers. Verse 3, preserving the unity. Verse 4, keeping in mind that there's one body. We're all one family. Well, how do we do this? How is this even possible? Do we have the resources to live this way, Paul? Yes, verse 7. But to each one of you, each Christian, every Christian, there it is. Every single Christian, each one of us, grace was given. There it is. What does that mean? He's specific. The grace gift, a spiritual gift. That's what he calls it. Our spiritual gift was given by grace. In other words, we didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. It was all of God. It was initiated by him. And he gave it graciously to us. So verse 7 says every single Christian has a gift of grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Jesus Christ gave the spiritual gifts as did the Holy Spirit. That's Ephesians 4, 7. So every Christian has a spiritual gift. And they matter. And like I said, some of us might not know what our gift is or maybe we want to dis- we need to discover what it is. And there is a process of discovering your spiritual gift. And just to summarize it, what if you don't know your spiritual gift or what it is? Then I would say um, the best thing to do is to start serving with a few guidelines. It's kind of like the 18-wheel semi-truck that when it is not moving and you try to move the steering wheel, you can't. But even if that uh, semi starts moving at about three to five miles an hour, all of a sudden you can actually steer it. So you don't have to be moving too fast. Start serving, start trying to be obedient, start searching the scriptures, start listening to counsel in the local church. And God is going to direct you, I believe, to where your spiritual giftedness is and where it's most effective. Um, some specific things to keep in mind regarding your gift and using it and discovering your gift is you start serving. Uh, first, oh, also, first examine your desires. What are your desires? Because that's what I always ask people. What is your spiritual gift? And they might say, well, I'm not sure. Well, what do you want to do? 
oh, well, I like music and I like to sing or uh, I love kids. I hate kids. Okay, I mean, that helps me. Uh, you hate kids? Okay, I'm not putting you in the nursery. And then they, yippee! Um, but you've got to start with your desires. Now, your desires aren't the ultimate test of truth, but it, it's a place to start, the desire. How has God wired you? Um, and then you pursue that area. Also, in trying to discover your gift, where do you see the need in the church? If you're a person that sees a specific need in the church, that could very, very well be that you have an inclination in that area or maybe you're gifted in that area. Uh, Pastor, we need uh, more evangelism in this church. I heard an amen. That's probably somebody gifted in evangelism. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm with you, sister, brother. What are you going to do about it? Sounds like God's calling you to be the evangelist of this church. That's how God works. Uh, Pastor, we need... Uh, women's ministry in this church pastor we need this in this church but and on and many times well wow your desire is being manifest right now because you are seeing a need that maybe most people aren't seeing in the church there's a weakness there is a void we need strength in that area man maybe god's calling you to fill it could very well be you are equipped to do that very thing so that's kind of the subjective side but it is a real side not to be neglected then you start serving an important thing is you're working in conjunction with the leadership of the church, whether it's the elders, starting at the elders, but also leaders in certain areas of ministry. Work with them. And then here's the most important thing. As you're serving, listen to their feedback. Uh, You came and uh, you taught in the youth Sunday school with the teenagers, and how do you think it went? Oh, I think I did really good. Well, wow, okay, I think you did really bad. You need to listen to that feedback. Or, you know what? I, man, you seem to have a giftedness of a natural rapport with teenagers I haven't seen in years. Really? Yes. So we need to explore that. Has God gifted you with either maybe, maybe teaching or teaching particularly to youth? So that's what I mean by exploring it. And then very importantly, you've got to have that sounding board and getting objective feedback. You did very well there. Or, ooh, that didn't go well. Uh, here, we need to make these changes. You absolutely need feedback, direction, encouragement, training. Uh, it needs to be nurtured. Every spiritual gift needs to be nurtured. It needs to grow. It needs to mature. If I were to ask you, what is my spiritual gift? Hopefully, you'll say teaching. <laughs> but anyway, uh, would be one of them. I don't know if I have any other gifts. Um, but I'm thinking, my gift is teaching. You talk about ironic. God has a sense of humor. Because I could not have planned it that way. Uh, true, if you knew me growing up, I was the most introverted, shy, conscientious person there was. And I just was consumed with what people think about. And I was incredibly shy. And I didn't, I, the last thing in the world, I'd rather die than stand up in front of the first grade class with the boys, with the girls sitting in the seat and us having to recite something like the Pledge of Allegiance. And so I would literally get behind three of my friends and if we had to do anything public nature, like I remember when I was in third grade and we had the school play, and every grade, one through eight, had to do some kind of performance. And then on the, we had the uh, grand showing. We'd been practicing for two months, and then that fateful Christmas Eve night, uh, we all had to go and perform in the plays to our parents. And I was a third grader, and our third grade class of 22 students had been practicing the Who's down in Whoville, the Grinch, for like two months. And I was a Who down in Whoville with little things sticking out of my head, little... Uh, Pipe cleaners on my head that were green. And the night came to go perform the performance, and I feigned illness. I, yes, the pastor lied. And I told my mom, and she let me off. I fooled her. I didn't have to go to the play, and I wasn't in it. And then I made fun of all the guys the next day. Oh, you had to stand up there like a fool, looking like a who, whatever. Uh, 
But the, the point was, I was scared to death to stand up in front of anybody, anything public, or say anything. And I was actually like that until I got into college. And then I got saved and became a Christian. And it was weird. I had this strong, burning passion all of a sudden to just preach and teach the Bible. But it was always not in a context where there were people there. I wanted everybody to hear me, but I didn't want people to be there. That's why I always wanted to be like in radio. Hidden in a booth, there's nobody around, I could say what I want, plug it in, unplug it, see ya. I had my say. Um, and so I go through college and I study the Bible and I want to teach and preach and give my opinion. And then I get to seminary and then I'm trying to graduate from seminary I had to take this homiletics class where you had to get up and actually speak in front of people, the Bible, and be graded. And I was scared to death. Uh, for three years, I knew, man, eventually someday I'm going to have to take homiletics class and I'm going to actually have to preach a sermon in front of people and the video camera and my peers and the teacher. I do not want to do that. I should go talk to the dean and see if I can get an exception clause and graduate with having to, without doing a year of homiletics. He wouldn't let me. He said, well, that's what we're training you for, to preach in front. What are you, you're a knucklehead. What are you thinking? Yes, I know. I'm a knucklehead. Okay, I'll take the class. And then uh, I took that first class that first sermon i'll never forget 15 minutes on john chapter 1 verse 1 and you know what i survived i made it through alive barely anyway and then the years go by and then i was pretty pathetic as a teacher and communicator in a lot of different ways talking too long was one of them not paying attention to the clock talking too fast saying too much uh, this was like in the first five years of it, whether i gave a testimony or whatever and then finally but during seminary, you had to get involved in a ministry, so one of the guys plugged me into children's ministry because I was too afraid to do anything else. Just come and observe the third graders. Oh, okay, I think I can do that. Observing them. After a month observing the third grade Sunday school class, the, the leader says, uh, I want you to make announcements to the third graders next week. What? <laughs> no, I'll write it out for you. There's only four of them. To the third graders, they're 10 years old. No. Uh, but I did it. I, I read the announcements to the third graders. And they were very honest. Mr. McManus, you were shaking all over the place. Why were you doing that? But they, they were very loving, too, and forgiving. So, And then, uh, it was like six months later, uh, the, the guy in charge, oh, and then he invited me to children's church, which was like 90 kids, fourth through sixth grade. And I'm observing. And then he puts me in a small group with like five fifth grade boys. And then I got over that and got used to it. Okay, I can handle this. And then after six months, uh, he called me on the phone middle week and says, uh, uh, Cliff, I'm leaving town. So you need to teach the main lesson in children's church this week. What? You have got to be kidding me. So I had to teach a 30-minute lesson to about 100 fourth through sixth graders. That was the most frightening prospect in the history of my life. And I kept calling him back every day. No, I can't do it. I've been trying. I've been said I can't do it. You've got to get somebody else. You've got to get another sub. He just kept no, you can handle it, and then just hang up on me. <laughs> and uh, then it came and went, and I, I know I said something for 30 minutes. And then uh, he began to give me more opportunities and evaluating me and helping me and giving me pointers and giving me advice and coaching me and being very specific. And then God brought me through uh, different Christian schools where I had administrators and teachers, long, comprehensive, written evaluations of how you can improve and where you have a strength and on and on. Now I'm in seminary. I've been teaching at Cornerstone, like I said, almost 10 years. Every year, the end of the year, all the students give this like five-page written evaluation of my teaching. And that's kind of intimidating. But every year I read them. And, okay, God, help me be teachable here. Refine me. 
and show me where my strengths are, show me where my weaknesses. So that's a long illustration, but it's a personal one and a real one to hopefully help you and make you realize that, okay, maybe you come up short initially, or that doesn't mean that's not necessarily your gift, but you've got to keep exploring, you've got to persevere. Most importantly, probably, is having the humility to get the feedback from others around you. Because they're going to either affirm your giftedness or they're going to say, mm, you know, let's try something else. Let's try. That's the nice way of saying, you stink. Let's try something else. See how God might be leading you. So, But that's how God wants to do it. He wants to use the body to refine us, help us grow and mature. And so many of you, you might be in that place where you're trying to explore and find out what your giftedness is, and you need to ask for help too. Uh, ask the elders, ask friends in, the, in this church uh, that we would pray with you and give you opportunities where we can see you grow and bless. And God, he's going to... He's going to honor that desire and that request. So we're going to leave it at that. And like I told you, we're going to, we're going to go slow, but these are incredibly important. Next week, we're just going to jump right into uh, number three. And I want to finish three through nine actually next week because I want to keep the continuity intact because it's so important. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and pray to our Lord and ask for his blessing. Father, we thank you for this day, the new year that is upon us which is always a good practical way, Lord, to lay our life before you, to evaluate what's gone behind, to see what you did, to see how you sustained us, to see how you blessed, to see how we might need change. And also, we lay the year before you, uh, confident knowing that you're going to go before us. You said you would never leave us or forsake us. You love your children. We're in the palm of your hand. No one can snatch us. No one can separate us from the love of Christ. We thank you for that awesome truth. God, help us assimilate these truths we've heard today about spiritual giftedness. I thank you that you've given every Christian here in this body a spiritual gift, maybe even a combination of them. Help us to continue to explore what they are, to use them, to edify the body, to be reminded that we're stewards before you for everything you've blessed us with, and we need your help so desperately. But we thank you for these gifts of grace. We commit our time to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.